On this week's Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about the human brain. We'll be talking about how technology is impacting our neural networks. And also, we'll talk about how, as social creatures, we're hardwired for human-to-human connections and the implications for workplaces as we enter a new hybrid way of working. I'll be joined by Fiona Kerr, CEO and founder of the Neurotech Institute. It's going to be a good one, so stay tuned to this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello, I'm delighted to be joined by Fiona Kerr, founder and CEO at the Neurotech Institute in Adelaide. Hi, Fiona. How's it going? Hi, very well. How are you? I'm not bad. It's the day after St. Patrick's Day, so I'm a little bit, little bit tired today. Um, it's a bank holiday as well, so I just got to get this done, and then I'm off for the day. So it's great. Uh, how's things? How's things in your part of the world? How's life? It's good. It's evening time. So um, we've had a lot of rain yesterday, but it's nice and sunny again today. So yeah, it's really pretty. I live in the hills, I think. It's kind of the closest. So I'm originally Scottish, so it's the closest to getting back to there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's the closest to getting back to, to having some rain. And uh, you probably don't have the same cold as you do from in Scotland. But um, anyway, what's and Scotland's, yeah. Scotland's probably, probably a little bit worse than Ireland, the climate. But um, yeah, no rain. I think we do. We have rain yesterday, St. Patrick's. No, it was lovely yesterday for St. Patrick's Day. So yeah, oh. so it's uh, it's all good. Um, so firstly, well, listen, I know it's hard to coordinate with the time difference. So thanks for joining me today. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this one because it, my job in marketing. I mean, I know you know how the brain works and how people function is is important in in well, pretty much every industry. But in my job, it's really important to understand people and to understand why they do the things they do, why they why they don't do what, what we as marketers want them to do. So I'm really fascinated by the whole area of uh, neuroscience and, and how the brain works and functions. I think it's incredible. So, um, and, you know, there is a thing, one of the things that failings, I think, that that people um, make in marketing is that we, we sometimes think that people are logical um, and that, you know, they know what they want. And it, it's the very opposite of that. So we're going to talk about the importance of physical interaction and the importance of that in, in the kind of construct of remote working and hybrid working and some of the kind of negatives around that. But before we get into that, we'll get into that a little bit later on in terms of new new workplaces. But before we get into that, I just want to chat about generally about the human brain and um, how we're wired as people, the importance of physical touch and interconnectivity of people. So um, this is a marketing podcast so it's it, essentially what I try and understand sometimes is trying to understand how people do things how people use media and technology sometimes and understand and understand also the impact that media and technology has on people uh, and, our, and our brains so I saw a TEDx talk that you did and it was a great talk and you, and you talked about how important it is for us to daydream and I think you were talking about the analogy you gave you asked people like when you were last in a queue did you daydream did you talk to somebody did you kind of take your phone out of your pocket and it was just it was brilliant because and you talk about daydreaming has actually been really important for our brains uh, to develop our self-awareness so so now when we think about it and I know this when when we don't have any downtime at the moment so screen time replaces downtime like you're never bored so what I want to know is: is this a, is this a big problem? Is this overexposure to screen time and and the kind of and the lack of daydreaming, kind of engaging our brain on that kind of, you know, kind of unconstrained thinking and just wandering around our brain type of, type of thing? Is that making us less smart as a, as a species? Um, it, yes, and we can come to that. But um, you're also probably also more bored um so it's really interesting when we look at what happens when we daydream so daydreaming is our natural default state it's called it's called abstraction 
And what happens when we pull the phone out because we've got a few minutes is um, we just we stop that happening completely because what we do is distract ourselves with busy things on a phone, right? So that's it's um, visual and it's colourful and it moves. And so we tend to, and we're quite addicted to it. So we tend to just pull that out, get a bit of dopamine and um, and we can, but it doesn't necessarily feed our um, curiosity. And there's a lot of other things. So boredom in itself would be a whole big, you know, conversation. Um, so what you do when you're abstracting is it's it, the same thing happens when you're sitting at work and you you're trying to do something and you're trying to come up with a word or you're trying to finish a paper and you're thinking, what is it? Uh, I, I can't remember. And then you kick back for a minute, look out the window and you get the word or you get the idea and you go, ah, that's it. Um, because what we're doing when we're either looking at the phone being distracted or we're pushing our brains down this kind of rabbit hole of that's where the information is, we're on task base, basically, is we're stopping the brain from being able to kind of kick back and and riff and to connect across different areas because the brain holds pieces of information all over the place. It distributes it everywhere and it collaborates to put it back together again and give it to you. So you've got to let it do that. You've got to let it play around and abstraction turns on multiple areas and allows your brain to kind of make different um, connections, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. um, and when we, when we also look up, we, we actually change our perspective so one of the things that's worried me for many years with my work has been when we're always looking down and we're always just doing very short-term things whenever we have time to reflect instead of reflecting we just we just you know do that distraction thing we're actually not thinking about the bigger things in life we don't have that kind of look up perspective and it's fascinating now over a number of years the level of short-termism that has grown, especially in terms of complex problem-solving and complex decision-making in all walks of life in many, many countries. So it's actually a really kind of visceral issue. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting because I know in, in particularly in, in my job and in my industry, about business generally, like the, the short-termism is a huge thing. And, and, you know, I know that the, like, business moves in, in quarterly cycles, but um, the idea to, of, you know, our, our brains, I mean, like a dopamine hit our brains wanting to find a, a, a quick fix, a short-term solution. Yeah. So, um, and, and it's amazing to hear that that's, that's somehow, um, I mean, it makes total sense, but it's great to talk to somebody who, who knows what they're talking about as opposed to, you know, things that, that I would say, yeah, that kind of makes sense, but there's no science behind it. So, I mean... Well, the other thing we do, sorry, yeah. the other thing we do is we stop, we also stop looking in. So I often say, looking out lets us look in. You know, looking up lets us look in. Because when you look up or when you just lie on the lawn or <laughs> give yeah. yourself some time, because the brain's always really busy, and if you let it go, it's even busier. It actually takes up more calories. Um, it's then that you connect a lot to reflecting, reflecting on your thoughts and your feelings. And one of the things that's a real worry nowadays is people almost are escaping doing that. So yeah. I've been on TV shows when afterwards I've, you know, been saying to the people, so why do you pick the phone up all the time? And what would you do instead? And when did you last reflect? And in the end, they've said, 
I don't think I want to. I think it's easier for me to actually yeah. pick the phone up. And, and yes, it is, but it's not better for us. No, no. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, and we, we'll we'll probably get on and talk about some of the the kind of long term damage that later on. But again, like, well, let's talk about it now. Actually, so when we think, I've read a lot about this. I, I, you know, there's a lot of talk about social media about. You know the damage that it does. Look, it's great. Technology is brilliant. Um, we it, the ability to for us to be connected and to share. You know, particularly on, on social media, kind of we can feel like we can keep up with people living in other countries, and we're very connected into our friends. Um, now the idea of having fifteen hundred friends is quite ridiculous. But when we think about the impact that 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 social media, and particularly in this kind of obsession with social media, has with the younger generations and teenagers, is there a danger that because you you might think that like social media it makes us more social it connects us better but given the fact that that the relationships are, are are online and they're lacking that kind of physicality and there's so much pressure i think to to be seen to be living your best life is there a danger um in terms of the long term damage to people that that we are like the next generation of people who've grown up because we really haven't had a, too many generations that have have grown up with social media in their lives so younger people and teenagers today that have grown up with it are they, is there any evidence to suggest that they are kind of, there's kind of mental damage in terms of their, their hardwiring, their brain, depression, loneliness, isolation, or worse even? Yes. <laughs> um, and we've now had 28 odd years of um, technology and screens. So there are some fantastic long-term studies. So I don't know if you've read the, um, the, oh, the iGen sort of study, there's Twenge's Goldilocks studies, there's all sorts mm. of things now. They're starting to look at the trending. Um, and there's all of these kind of wonderful um, terms for various things, like the the lack now um, of being able to comfortably or with skill um, negotiate things like face-to-face discussions that are negative or ending friendships or relationships. You know, people now text. Um, but those kind of things are the the the, I guess, the bad side of not being able to stay face to face so that you learn to pick up all of the micro behaviors and you learn to read that the wide array of those socio-psychological signals that we get. But the other thing that we don't get when we're on social media um, is it we don't get all of the lovely direct connections we get when we're sharing space. So mm. we get we now know we get about 2,000 chemo signals that we trade in space. We know that we get something called interbrain synchronization. So we can actually measure the level of excitation of each other's brains. And it's a physical thing. We know we pick up lots of micro behaviors that we don't pick up when we're on screens. We know that if we hug or touch or even you know shake hands, we get this massive amount of extra sort of chemical um eruption that goes on and, and it's very good for our brains and our bodies we know we get oxytocin at really high levels when we're face to face and actually in physical proximity and that changes immune systems it changes all sorts of things to do with biological wiring so we already know that social networking um has biological effects um and i guess one of the things that is now fascinating is there's enough information that we can even look at things like how many hours as an under two-year-old, you know, did the child have a screen sitting in front of it? Right. And then you can kick forward and say, well, not just as a teenager, you get increased isolation, increased depression, increased, uh, there's a number of things that, that are, I guess, negative um, 
mood, depression and loneliness sort of connections. But also they now have these people as adults. And because you get a lot less things like oxytocin, which boosts your immune system, um, and you get more isolation, which actually creates well, certain metabolic things that increases things like, or it impacts your immune system and it also um, stops you from um, getting all sorts of things to do with uh, cardiac disease, to do with uh, obesity. It, it affects so much. It has a very direct effect on, a, on a, quite a list of things that happen to you as adults. Um, so we've now got quite long-term studies on the impact, the social, you know, sorry, the physical impact mm. of this on our body. And it's, it's not, it's not good. No, you know, information. No. Uh, yes. Yeah, so and yeah, again, it makes sense. But our, I mean, I think the, and I see it in here, I see it in here in our office with people sometimes when we're saying, saying hey, you know, um, you, you might have some problem and you'd say to people, give, give the client a ring or give the media owner a ring and go, Oh yeah, no, I sent them an email. So, and it's hard to develop any kind of empathy or emotional intelligence if you're, if most of your relationships are are digital. If you can't, you know, and that that thing, you know, read the room. It's hard to read the room if you're, if you're kind yeah, of doing if you, those, on, if you can't see people, you can't pick up on things. Yeah. It's impossible. You can't pick up those chemo signals because no. we get, as I said, we get a massive amount of information through physical proximity. But when you bring up empathy, that's a really interesting part. So quite specifically, I was looking at social empathy because I also work with children and parents of young children on the use of technology and empathetic engagement. Um, But other people kind of look at um, a lot of that, the changes in that. And that's one of the specific things which changes when you use high levels of of kind of social networking and screens. Mm. So what you get is um, something called the digital wall, which is that real lack of direct connection. Um, And so they've now paired things like social anxiety and time online. It's a direct kind of inverse, you know, um, impact. Um, They've corrected, uh, sorry, they've connected up um, the amount of people that in the last two decades there's been a tripling of, of the young people saying, I have no one to discuss important matters anymore. No one actually really cares. Um, and so they kind of think that that's a normal thing. Mm. But the cognitive effects change emotional processing and executive attention to being able to pick up those kind of signals. Yeah, it's, 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 quite, it's quite worrying when we, and we're, we're, it's only going to get worse in terms of generations of of. of you know, adults as they have grown up with technology and over reliance on it. Like we are, we're, we are built for those human connections. So, um, what actually happens in inside our brains when we physically connect with other people? So, talk to me about the the neurophysiological effect of touch. How important touch is? I mean, I saw something that you had you you'd done a talk about the effect of um, human contact on on in it from between a, a nurse or a doctor and a patient so how important is eye gaze on healing and and retinal eye lock i, I think as you, it was the phrase you used in the in that talk that i saw you so just talk to me about what goes on in our brains when that happens okay so when you when you look at someone um you have a really fascinating thing that happens straight away so within about a 12 of a second you've got something called a vodaconomo neuron that turns on and that's the one which says do i trust you will i see you again will you be in my social structure one twelfth of a second 
it starts to kind of figure that out. And then at about a sixth of a second, you've got some types of mirror neurons that start to try and pick up intent and start to mirror the level of your friendliness, you know, those kind of things. Um, and then we've got lots and lots of oxytocin receptors around and in our eyes. And so humans are rewarded with, with lots of oxytocin when we look at each other directly. So that's the retinal eye lock aspect. And so it increases pro-social behavior. Um, it improves your mental state immediately because you get this lovely dose of oxytocin and dopamine and vasopressin whenever you look at each other. Um, and so what starts to happen is you start to get uh, oxytocin improves the immune system. So you start to get this boost immediately in things like that. And touch um, has, we've got things called C fibers in our skin, um, which is kind of the biggest sensory organ we've got. And they're the very slow nerve fibers that they don't pick up sort of the quick things of pain. They're very slow and they pick up the warm feeling of someone touching you or stroking your arm or, you know, patting you on the shoulder or giving you a hug. And they give you, a, again, a massive um, amount as soon as that happens um, of all sorts of, uh, well, you get dopamine at drug level, you get serotonin um, increasing. And so your pain relief in, sort of improves, you heal faster, you get uh, you get dopamine with that as well. You get lots of endorphins and opioids. So again, if you're in pain, that that kind of lowers that. Um, you can manage all sorts of uh, bad information and pain better because it calms all sorts of nervous systems. Um, so it's it's called a, a positive cortical dynamic as the technical term. So what they do is they just calm the whole system down and they start building up all of those immune positive reactions straight away. So if you've got a, the, what I was talking to you about um, before with the, the nurse effect mm. um, is, you know, you've got someone, so I can come into you um, and you can be the nurse and you admit me and you've already looked into my eyes when I've been filling something out, hopefully, rather than looking at a screen, because um, it actually makes a difference even from then. Um, and then I might see you a couple of times when I'm having my operation, but then, I might get upset or I might be in pain. And what we do now is we tend to first give me sort of drugs um, and then we could potentially even give me something that would kind of make me, you know, I have to stay in place depending on how upset I get and whether I'm old and in an aged care home or whatever happens. Um, but if I could have you come in for three to five minutes instead and just sit with me, then what happens immediately when I look into your eyes is that um, I start to lower my cortisol and, and lower my adrenaline. I start to increase my oxytocin and my dopamine and my serotonin. Off goes my immune system. All of those cortisol receptors can now, you know, sop up all the cortisol and stop that from having a negative effect. I start to calm down. You get a lot of those lovely chemicals as well because they're reciprocal. Right. If my oxytocin goes up and I'm looking at you, your oxytocin goes up as well. So that's why carers feel nice when they're caring for someone. Okay. Um, and then so within a couple of minutes, you've actually calmed my whole body down. You've given me as much serotonin and dopamine, you know, as, as drugs will do. And you also feel better because you've sat there and you've helped and you've got some of those chemicals. So what you end up with when I'm working with hospitals and health systems is if you give the nurse the agency to be able to do that, 
and you give those people a couple of minutes, then you actually end up with this win-win-win situation because right. you've got, you know, you've got a, a, a patient who's feeling better and is going to heal faster. You've got a nurse who has that agency to help and also feels better. So they won't leave. You haven't got the, the turnover and you don't have to spend as much on mm. a lot of those things that are supposed to intercept when people start to get anxious or, or have pain. So we just totally underestimate the amazing power of that human you know, interconnection. Yeah. And if you add voice, if you're talking to me, then it's another whole thing we could spend half an hour on because we get we get voice to voice uh, brain to brain coupling when we talk and it gives you sort of theta gamma delta which we can now measure and it changes again all sorts of things in our body and it calms us down right. that's why we love the phone up and talk to someone that we know yeah when we feel either happy or upset it will calm you down or connect you yeah yeah it, it it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, so when, you know, and we say like we're wired, we use that that phraseology, we're hardwired for human connection. So, but given, like if, if we keep using screens, if, if like as a, as a population, if people keep using screens to the same level as we are today, is there a danger that, um, you know, we our brains can become kind of rewired uh, and we become kind of this new human being who is not wired the way we're. How long does this take? Could it become a thing where we've kind of changed our internal wiring and then that becomes hereditary, gets passed on? We're creating new generations of people that are wired differently because there's completely different kind of brain patterns in people. Is Can that happen or how long does this take to change? Yeah, um, so that's something that we actually don't know. So in in, in Finland, I have um, a role of saying, what do we know and what don't we know right now? And what questions do we need to ask? And one of the things that, so that we do know a lot. We do know that, um, that what we get already is epigenetic changes. So with genetics, you've got, you know, it's the nature nurture stuff, right? So the, the, the nature stuff is the stuff you're born with. You're wired that way when you come out. But the human brain is a work in progress all our lives. And it's incredibly non-differentiated when we are born. We spend the first couple of years sort of differentiating it. Um, and so, and then there's the, the nature, which is the what happens to you once you're in the world, once you're in the environment, and how does that change the way that our body and our brain um, melds and molds and grows? Um, and so you get those epigenetic changes. So what you can get um, is we already know that people with, um, say, trauma, they can actually pass on to the next generation right. various things uh, and there's still a lot of research there because if you put them in an environment where you minimize the negative um, uh, the negative reaction to something, you can kind of almost make that um, sort of sublimated. You can really lower the impact and the damage that's going to do. But if you put them in an environment where they are still under that kind of pressure, then you will really maximize, you know, that, that change in them. So mm. it's similar in some ways with the, the screens. Yes, we do 
um, change. We do change the way that we wire for empathy. We change our attention span. We already know that across the world, our attention span's halved. Well, it's more than half now. Um, and some of what you're talking about as well, we also have increased cognitive load. We don't pay uh, nearly as much attention to kind of proactive picking up various signals, which don't come over screens. So we're not very good now at reading people um, socio-psychologically. Um, and, that's, and, and the trouble with that is it becomes a habit. So because I'm not as good at reading you, I will tend to, to control the situation by using text. And that just makes me even worse at being able to read you. Right. So I work with sort of, you know, doctors and specialists that I say, look, you, you're working with your patients. Your face-to-face -face contact with them is your superpower because guess what? It changes the way you get information. It changes how much radar you've got in picking up really good information. But it also picks up, it changes the way they take you know, their tablets, what they will do, it changes their behavior. And they just do it, the more you do it, the better you'll get. And they come back years later and say, well, you're right. You know, we were always told we had to be very hands-off and very stern about this and very professional, but I actually am better at this now because I've, I've practiced it. So the good news is those bad habits, once we know just how critical it is to have face-to-face -face contact, which changes how our brain wires and changes how we pick mm. up signals, then we can build that in. And so there's one example, a beautiful example. They took kids that were um, on screens and, I well, I'll, it'll take too long to go through all of the things that, you know, that drop in communication and, and um, capacity and the, and the increase in moodiness and depression and loneliness and social connection and those kind of things. 10 minutes face-to-face -face, um, interaction with uh, school-aged children uh, reversed the lack of being able to read their schoolmates right. um, and their kindy mates um, because what they were reading, what they were noticing was that the capacity to empathise and tune in with the other kids um, was markedly dropping. And so when they stopped any form of screen, you know, situations and yeah. have this face-to-face -face contact and eye-to-eye -eye contact, then it boosted that straight away. So a lot of what the problems are is habits. So right. I, I can remember going to, I was in New York working and I went to a children's park and I wish that the place was like a Faraday cage because I sat there on a bench and the parents would come in because it's not the kids that are the problem, it's the parents now. We have, you know, we have multiple generations. And they would come in holding this two-year-old's hand and they'd let the two-year-old run off, still looking at their phone, and they'd sit on a bench and an hour later they'd still be looking at their phone. And there's these little children that are kind of half running around, half wondering what to do, often bored sitting on the lawn. And, and the adult has not taken their eyes off this thing. And it's just... It's awful. And whereas a dog, you know, we've got funny videos of dogs sort of pinching the phone and burying it because they know right, that yeah. it's really destructive to the relationship. Um, we, you know, we can't do that. We can, when they're little, they can make a noise. But damage to things like, I think it's girls from seven on or, yeah, seven to eight, they're really noticing their lack of self-worth um, because when they're trying to talk about something really important, 
then the person's not listening. Because we know. We yeah. know when a person we're talking to is not really listening to what we're saying. And if we feel like they're not listening, we will not talk to them about what really matters yeah. to us. No, absolutely. So they start to feel that they don't matter because you're always going, oh, just a minute, just a minute, I'll take this, I'll look at this text, I'll look at this. And, and what you then get is this terrible message that's going on. Right. Yeah. So, so if we stop that, to go back to your question, sorry. Um, so so what you're a lot of what you're talking about is that kind of habitual um getting used to the dopamine spike, getting used to picking up the phone naturally when you've got a minute and being distracted instead of just leaving it there and thinking about things. And and this is the bad side of tech. We haven't talked about the good side, but it's it's us managing the technology instead of the technology kind of managing us. Yeah. And yeah. if we do that, you know, it's it's a very complex thing. It's a, a multifunctional thing which offers real intimacy at the same time as as being what some of the US guys called a social prophylactic. You know, you never ever touch. Yeah. And it's a really interesting yeah, juxtaposition. You know, it's, that we, you know we, we're not we're not good at dealing with it, and we're certainly not good at designing them. Mm. That's one of the things that we need to do is change the way that we design those things and change the rewards for the designers, um, so that you know we get things that better match mm. getting us to connect instead of disconnect. So that, again, makes perfect sense, and 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 it's it's really I mean scary the the, the kind of impact of of screen time that that. You know, when you look look at the impact it has, I mean, I know, obviously, yeah, I know it impacts relationships and and, and things like that. But to, to, to see that, you know, all the things about the physicality or the, the physical health of, of you know, how important our brain is. So now I'm not sure how, how familiar you are with the with the metaverse. I'm sure you, you know um, a bit about it, like, but in a very simplistic way the, and the. The, the videos I've seen from Facebook's vision of it, which is kind of like, it's quite childish looking, these kind of avatars. But the idea that we can um, put a headset on and recreate a world, live in a totally virtual world where our characters will actually go up and kind of interact with one another and and the brain can be kind of tricked a little bit. Now, you can imagine it as the, the technology gets better and the, the kind of... Um, you know the, the the caricatures and the avatars get better, and it will some sometime in the future probably replicate pretty close to real life. In that instance, even though it's still kind of screen based, but it doesn't feel like a screen based because my my brain feels that I'm immersed in this world. Can you um, replicate, or is it, or is maybe it's not possible to know at the moment? Like it's not physical interactions, but the brain might think it is. It's as close to a physical interaction as you're going to get in a virtual world. Would would that type of connectivity? kind of increase the 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 impact on the brain or is that still the brain says no there's a, there's no you cannot technology cannot kind of replicate the what goes on in the brain through virtual worlds or anything like that. it's just impossible to replicate we need that physical you can't fool the brain so there are things that will never transfer over technology mm-hmm. um that we get in proximity so we work with the department of defense on this on kind of minimally manned processes and robotics and on autonomous systems and brain-computer interfaces and what can you pick up, what cannot you pick up to be able to transfer across a virtual um, system. And so there's still lots of the, the different kinds of micro-behaviours that don't transfer. There's still interbrain synchronization and intrabrain synchronization that doesn't transfer. There's still various parts of the voice resonance that don't transfer over, um, well, a lot of different types of microphones. The chemosphere is the big thing. So when we do share space, 
we've measured 2,000 chemicals that we we share. And that's the stuff about when you said you can't read the room. You know, that's the, you come into the room and you just know immediately. You either go, ah, and you're, you're going to join in or sort of the hair rises on the back of your neck and you think, uh-oh. Because um, we just, and that's because we've actually picked up hundreds of signals um, before we've even thought about them. So that is is just not able to be done. Right. And and we are playing around with sort of chemosphere sort of pushing into virtual systems, but the brain really does know the difference right now. Um, but the other side of it is we're electrochemical bags, right? So the more immersive the game is, the more electrically excited humans are um, because it is a stimuli that the brain is very familiar with. So that's why a really highly immersive VR environment is very engaging mm. um, and makes you feel like you are, you know, feeling all of the emotions, uh, but it's also extremely cognitively fatiguing. So one of the problems that we've got, and I've had someone up to six hours in um, in VR, because remember a, a while ago we said, oh, it's great, we'll just send our avatar to work, you know, yeah. we can stay home way before COVID. But one of the problems we get is when you test them afterwards, they're really good at things like um, the small motor um, work because they've been doing lots and lots of that kind of using their hands and, and using the controls. But because they're really cognitively fatigued, they're not good at complex problem solving. And they're also very distracted. So some of that sort of creative ideation that you get in a in a direct face-to-face environment where you actually stimulate that in each other, um, that doesn't happen. Um, and so they're quite a problematic kind of environment. Right. And there's a and we did an experiment last year about on um, solving a complex problem on your own over that virtual system. Versus having someone um, live that you don't know that you collaborate with, and then they stay there, and you still have your connection, your VR, con- uh, your uh, virtual connection, and the person who has just had their face-to-face collaborative interaction with another human being, their intrabrain synchronization is higher, and so they're better right. at doing, the, you know, the activity. So mm. we have this really amazing impact on each other just by sharing space and connecting mm. um that you don't get over vr so so yeah, it's um, got to be hard to replicate that and, and that's really interesting because in, in you know a lot of what i a lot of my job particularly like quite a lot of it's task driven it's fine i can crack on myself and you're kind of you know the, the business as usual things but there's pitches and there's things where every you're kind of working on strategies for you're solving problems effectively, complex problems effectively, and I, intuitively, I've felt really hard working on pitches on 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 teams and things like that. And I I I I kind of thought it was easier in the office. I didn't know why, but it's actually you're telling me that that's that's scientifically correct. That actually you just in yes, terms of problem solving. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got something called intra-team synchrony. So there's there's all this fantastic science now in the last two years, which I'm so pleased about because I used to rabbit on about this for ten years. Everyone would go yeah yeah. Um. But it's so what basically happens that you're talking about now is when we interact with each other face to face, one of the things that we start to do and the more we know each other, the faster it is. We are very good. You know, we've got like potentially five quadrillion parallel processes going on in our brains. We are so superior still in that way. Um, So we get 
interbrain synchronization, and you can measure it. You can measure the electrical activity and connectivity between two people because we can put, you know, caps on two people and watch. And so the the higher the level of interbrain synchronization, Mm. the higher the level of all sorts of socio-emotional and creative um, and frontal lobe activity. And so we we are not only connecting each other with each other, but because you're stimulating the brain and putting out so much electrochemical activity in the other brain, not only do you have the interbrain, that's between humans, synchrony, but you start to increase the intrabrain synchronization right. in each brain. So it gets faster and better at mm. doing the work. So we speed each other up in person. Yeah. So what, given the importance, we, and we know now in terms of affects our mood, that the the physical connections or so the lack of, like given the, the way the world has been in the last two years, um, you know, we've been working remotely. It's been fine. Business and industry has kept going. But, the, you know, we're in an era of the great resignation, I think, is, um, you know, people are just fed up. People are fed up with their job. We're seeing it in, in, our, in our place. It's just people leaving the industry. People just getting fed up. Do you think, um, even though we're quite, capable of task-driven activities and, and business can continue. Do you think this lack of being in the office and, and everything that goes with that in terms of connectivity with people and the effect it has on our brains, is is that working from home why people are just fed up at the moment because we lack that human connectivity? Is that is that a, is a contributing factor in that, the kind of mood that we're We all know it, like, you know, just go, I don't know, I'm just fed up, just really pissed off or whatever. Um, and is that down to that, that lack of meeting all our colleagues and things in the office? It's certainly one of them. So it's it's a key one because it's that lovely chemical kind of boost that you get <laughs> from other people. And also you get a feeling of kind of belonging because there's various chemicals you only get when you, you connect. So definitely. And um, that direct contact was all the stuff we've just been talking about. Mm. But there's a couple of other things going on with COVID. So um, well, I guess the second thing is the stuff about the, you know, the, the sort of the online, it's, it's good for transactional stuff, but your point about the pictures and the creative stuff, because of the way that virtual technology codifies um, and because of the transactive way that we interact over a screen, it's it's fantastic. I mean, what do you absolutely need to be together in the same space to do? Mm-hmm. What can you do it? screen as well or even better um, and then when you know how do you combine both but the other thing that's happening in in COVID is because it's one of those things that's come out of left field we did not have control over it and humans hate that you take away locus of control humans feel really uncomfortable so they get change fatigue and they get cognitive fatigue and they get anxiety because we're not in control of what COVID's doing. You know, are we shut down? Are we isolated? We're allowed to come out again. No, we're shut down again. Right. And so because you never know, you get a big wallet of change fatigue all the time. It's also the real kind of cognitive fatigue of where are my boundaries now? How am I going to work? You know, that all, all of those things mm. um, are sort of stuck constantly. And then we've got the virtual fatigue. And that's not just the Zoom fatigue of I can see my face. That's That's not what it's about. It's... There's lots and lots of things that don't turn on in your brain over a screen, but there's other things that are turning on and not stopping and going nuts, trying to pick up the information that it's saying, I should be getting all these signals from this human in front of me and I'm not. So that's really 
tiring. Right. And also managing interactions in a new way, as you've said. You know, you're trying to make relationships with people you don't know. And those virtual connections are really different. Like even the trust that you build with mm-hmm. a marketing, even the trust you build with a with a new client is completely different over a screen. So you you have to interact with them differently. You have to talk about different things. You have to sort of physically act differently over a screen. You can't overwhelm them either. So it's that real kind of baby bear, just right kind of attitude. Right. Um, and and so that you're managing your all your relationships differently, and you're and we're trying to plan when we can get together as well. So the you know the Friday night drinks and the Friday night Zoom dinners are not the same. No. And very often they're really tiring after a day on a screen. Yeah, yeah. So I used to get people all the time ringing me up saying, I just want to go on the phone. I don't want to yeah. look at anyone anymore. And, the, and we've realised now how superior a phone is. There's some fantastic work that's just come out again about a month ago from Carnegie on how, how much better a phone is for things like creativity Right. Because just like reading a book instead of watching a movie, you know, a movie's beautiful, but it gives you their version of what yeah, the thing yeah. looks like. Whereas when you read the book, your brain has a party. You know, it uses its imagination. It makes up all of the pictures. And the same happens if you pick a phone up when you want to do a, a creative idea, if you can't actually be in person with them, with someone. Because you're letting the brain, again, you're letting the brain kind of play and riff and and you can often walk and talk as well. Like I go out in my garden when I'm on the phone to do yeah. that stuff. Um, and the other thing is if you have a difficult conversation to have with someone, have it over a phone because we've learned to to mask all sorts of things on a screen, but our brain still knows that they're not right. Um, and also we've got a lag time when you're watching someone and picking up what they're saying, which confuses the brain. But But we haven't learned to mask the emotion of our words and our voice. And so when we're just listening to someone, we pick up all of those emotional states and turn-taking and how they're actually really feeling much more accurately over Mm. a phone. Mm. And we also don't have to put a brave face on because you can't see us. And people will talk a lot more deeply on the phone. You know, it's been tested and tested now. It's really interesting. Right, yeah, no, that is. That's really interesting. so, I mean, given everything we've talked about at the moment and, and hi, the hybrid model is brilliant or, or remote working is brilliant. Um, so do you, are you a fan of the, as, as offices are, are back to, as people are back to the offices now, are you a fan of the hybrid model? Like it may be better for the employee because, you know, we get that kind of spike from hanging around and from, from seeing other people. It may be better in certain instances for, for the company because creativity improves. But But generally, overall, do you think it's better for businesses, for, for people to be at home? You know, I know that's definitely better for the individual, but overall, because people go, yeah, you know, it makes no difference. We're from home. It's all fine. But is it, it's a, it sounds to me it would be, I mean, you have to have a balance of things, but if I was, yes. if it was a business and I wanted my own, the only thing I cared about as a business was the, the kind of optimum performance of my business well that's going to perform better if all my employees are in the office because all the things that come out of that it's just it, it, it fosters better environments makes people better and um, keeps them happy seeing other people um so is it are you but are you a fan of the hybrid workplace the model i should say yes and the reason is i guess we're 
we're probably not going to go back. And we're still talking about jobs that can be done remotely. I mean, but there's a huge bunch of jobs that cannot yeah, be done yeah, remotely. True. You have to go to work. Um, and they're always forgotten in these conversations. But for the ones that you can do over, you know, at, at home, um, then the good organizations have always had good conversations about how to use technology and space. So for years, I've worked with organizations um, on having those conversations about what is the deep work in my job, which is the stuff I have to be online, on my own, and deeply diving and concentrating on. What's the stuff that's transactional that I can have the phone and the dings and the email alerts and the, you know, I can have all that going on at the same time and I can do this transactional sort of more shallow work, if you like. Um, and so when when can I be approachable and when am I not gettable? Um, when do I stop work? You know, all those kind of things. Mm. It's interesting working in Scandinavia where or after sort of five five thirty, no, you don't. You don't get contacted. You don't get texted. You right. because they consider it's very important for you to have downtime and family time and and you know that kind of thing. So what you get is the companies that have worked out always had those conversations have often allowed flexibility around picking up and dropping off kids, around having a day at home when you really need to dive into writing that new method. The, an organization mm. um, and then they've they also have um always had agreement on when you come together and and it's not just for sort of the coffee sort of chat so that's that's really interesting in terms of um when covid started and then people said oh we do need to come back to the office mm. and we've got this we've also got this whole overlay of people know they want to be with each other but also People potentially have COVID, and that just does our head in. We'll catch twenty-two. Right. So very often, it's not they don't want to come back to an office; they just don't want to come back to the life we have now, which is you know yeah. much more difficult. Yeah, but to go yeah. back to what you're talking about, um, so what you get is those organisations that talk well to their staff. So we're working with, well, we're actually working with a government department now. It's the biggest in one of the states, and it's we're working out how do you get everyone to understand what happens when you're face-to-face -face, and then how do you um, maximise the, the virtual interaction and what can you get out of that that's really good and when doesn't it work and when do you have the face-to-face -face instead and then how do you make sure that people can, each team can kind of work that out for themselves because hybrid doesn't work if you let it be too um, sort of shambolic because right. then someone come in and no one else will be there you know yeah, yeah. no it's hard work. it's definitely hard to plan you have to there's no as i was saying there's no point in if you want to bring back bring people into the office to to form a sense of team there's no point in everyone coming in on different days it just doesn't work so it's hard to definitely hard to coordinate but i think we well technology can help us kind of fix that with um you know coordinating bookings and seeing when your colleagues are in so um yeah and, yeah. and agreeing on and deciding so the companies that do it really well are the ones where you get this base knowledge about what happens when you're together what mm. happens over virtual how do you use each of those and then how do we agree on with the work that this team is doing what suits us and and also what tools do we use because 
So I've seen technical tools be used beautifully, and I've also seen technical tools absolutely tear apart a team. Right, yeah, <laughs> And yeah. they end up, you know, making them feel like they're being surveilled, yeah, not helped. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, uh, but if you've got a team that talks about all of that, so leaders have to talk about different things now. And when they want to get together, because people do like getting together, um, and what we're going to get together for, what we need to do that, and also what's the best type of technology that suits the sort of work that we can do at home. Right. And, and, you know, and what do we need and what bits do we turn on and what bits do we make sure we don't turn on and what do we measure and why do we measure it? You know, th- those kind of conversations should actually always have happened, but they certainly should happen in, um, in the current situation because when I talk to people who just after COVID wanted their people to come back to work, so there was some very high... Um, highly collaborative groups. I can remember a New York group that, um, that I know well and fantastic group of young, smart people that were, you know, sort of almost sort of living on each other's knees, a really very creative group in a big floor in New York. And their uh, CEO was devastated when she asked when they wanted to come back to work a few months after the COVID thing, when they were allowed to, and no one wanted to come back to work. Right. But then okay so ask them if they want to stay home and just work from home from now on and she asked that and no is the answer they don't want to stay home they just don't want to come back to this icky right yeah (laughs) not 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 go back not go back to the way it was was. yeah exactly Exactly. um yeah so then it's the discussions and and it ended up fine but it was having that it's because they had that really good connected culture in the first place yeah. that they could then have those discussions over okay so how are we going to work best mm. so, yeah it makes yeah. makes makes total sense um uh, uh, yeah again this is probably from my own point of view once you can help me out here like I, I've read a lot of things and I believe it about, I kind of know it maybe intuitively as well. I, I'm, I'm trying to f- solve some problem, I'm trying to think of some, I'm trying to work on a, on a solution to something. I can't get it. It's just not working in my brain. So I just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. And then, and then I'm in a position where I go, I, I probably should take a break from this. Just take my mind off it for a minute and come back and it will make it better. But then the idea of not sticking at it and taking a break from it, I kind of go, I don't have time to not keep going at this, I got to do it. But is there, is there evidence to, su- to suggest that, or to to kind of substantiate the thought that if you're trying to solve a problem and you just can't get it, or or even just as good practice, just for a task, take your mind out of a task, you know, take your mind off it, go for a walk, take ten minutes break, do, just do something else, even or just you know, just sit there and do nothing, and that yep. that actually then when you go back to the problem, you find oh yeah, it's much easier to solve. Is that is that actually true um that that yeah. break from things increases our cognitive functioning absolutely um so it's a bit like the thing we were talking about before where you kick back and look out the window and you go aha um so what you get is when you're pushing your brain to task you get very tired um and after a while so especially if you're in an organization where you don't have a nap. So people laugh about that because, you know, you, we grow our brain in all sorts of ways. But one of the things is we are biphasic animals. Which, and what that means is we're shaped to have two sleeps a day. So we rarely do. And by the time it's three or four or five even, and you're still trying to finish that report, 
your brain is so fatigued and your kind of your real working memory is so it's like your inbox and it's really overloaded and it hasn't been able to stop and have a break and file that stuff into the hippocampus to to have it sort of sit there to decide whether or you're not you're going to keep it even and so what you've got is this massive amount of sort of cognitive overload and so what you need to do then is to, to stop and walk away and break with it and also goes to how the brain through abstraction comes up with novel ideas or connects stuff so right. a perfect example of that for me is knowing this um, because I te- you know, talk about it all the time, um, how to be really efficient. I had a big government report to finish um, on the you know, 30th of June. It was some funding thing where I had to get it in by midnight. And it was massive. I was so far behind. And it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon and I was feeling really brain dead. And I thought, oh, I'll just have a 20-minute nap and I'll be all right. And knowing that that if you really have to change the way that you think about something and come up with a different way, come up with a much more inventive way, you actually have to have a full REM, a full deep sleep cycle, which is between one and one and a half hours. But right. I thought, no way, I can't afford that time. I had my 20 minutes. I came back out and I felt sharper and refreshed, but I went back to doing the same thing. So I thought, but you know, Fiona, that you've got to have your proper sleep. That's mm. the way you're going to get around this because you're still hitting the same wall. So I made myself have an hour's deep sleep. And when I came back out of it, I had about five hours to go for the report to midnight. And my brain suddenly went, okay, you don't, you're in too deep at that level. You've got this right. and this and this that you can pull down. You've got five other documents that you can now pull X, Y, and Z from. You don't need part three, five, and seven. It had done right. it all while yeah, I was yeah. asleep. Right. That's amazing. So, yeah. That's because yeah, it's because it, it seems completely counterintuitive you're facing a deadline and you've got you know to, so to take an hour to nap it just seems but yeah no it makes total sense I, I'm going to see how that goes in here I'm going to talk to our, our my boss about this and just see if we can put some um, hammocks in and, and encourage you to have a nap I'll let you know who I, I might get you on to kind of pitch to him just to let him know that it increases productivity so we'll see we'll see how it goes Um on that thought again, I, like I, I talk about this a lot um, in terms of internally when I'm talking about people inter- making, and it's a lot of what we what we talked about. Um, I don't think we've enough thinking time. So, you know, I think society is just obsessed with doing. We, you know, everything's fast and we're we're we're, we're productive. We got to be on it. There's loads and loads of quotes about this one. Um, you know, I, I do like the. Abraham Lincoln one, which says, if, if I had eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first five or six sharpening my axe. And that idea that thinking about something before you do it, you know, identifying the problem or, or you know, sharpening your axe effectively, as, as he calls it, is really, really important and really productive. But the, the what society values is doing. So, um, you know, and I always say, I've made this point in work before. I go like if you ran a business. Imagine our people were not in advertising. We're we're all um, tree cutters, and as a manager of people cutting trees, if you were to to kind of drive past and and gaze into the forest and you saw everybody idly sitting down sharpening their axes, I don't think you'd be very happy as a manager of people in in a company. Um, and if you saw one person ferociously chopping you'd say, yeah, that person, great worker, great worker, even though their axe might be blunt. So I don't think we, I, I just, I, I think not doing something is, is exactly as that. So kind of taking time out to think about things now equals, oh, you're not doing anything. You're, you, you know, you're unproductive where it, you could be 
completely increasing your productivity by by just taking that time out. So I think it was um, there was a quote. I don't know if it was. A, I don't know if Ronald Reagan actually said it, came up with it, but it was attributed to him. It was a, a quote I love. Somebody said in the podcast last year. Um, don't just do something. Stand there. And I, yes. I I love this idea that I mean I wish we were able to stand just stand there just think a little bit more. But I know personally my point of view. I I'd be really self conscious if in a busy office if I said. I'm just going to sit here and daydream for a minute. I'd be really conscious. And I think that would then put me off. My brain would then, the the, the benefits of the productivity w- wouldn't happen because I'd be consciously aware of, oh, you know, I'm worried people think. And I don't want people to think, oh, sure, he's always sitting there doing nothing. He's always looking at the window or whatever it might be. Um, but I don't think we, we, I don't think we give people enough thinking time. I think we, we are just busy, busy, busy. We love being busy. There's a comfort in business. I mean, I heard somebody saying before, if you want to, if you, if you walk around, walk fast with, with papers under your arm and you look busy and, and no one will bother you in an office. Like, what do you think about that? Do you think we should give people thinking time a bit more? That company should actually, every business should, should try and carve out some time for people to think. Absolutely. Um, so in that, uh, I've got something I've written for everyone. It's the art and science of looking up. And one of the things that I look at is meditation because there's some absolutely fascinating stuff now. Um, it was the Mind and Life Institute that um, that coupled with the Dalai Lama's kind of institute. And they're, they so they study and they test all sorts of things um, with media, with sort of um, with people that meditate. So not only when you learn to meditate, um, can meditators really quickly speed up that kind of way of getting into abstraction? You know, we talked about that as being the real almost, you know, quantum speed, really fast, the brain's really going um, in, in figuring out these novel ways to kind of cross-connect things. So they can go down into that really quickly and they minimise that kind of um distraction and they they learn to sustain their focus better and to very quickly get to information that's more directly relevant. But for me, one of the most fascinating things was that what they found is expert meditators, they they can't they, they don't just sustain the particular electrical brain pattern um, that lets networks be kind of grown um, and integrate cognitive and the emotional and the knowledge and the all the data, all of those things together. But then their brain more quickly converts that into an actual new piece of brain circuitry. So they through their capacity to um to well to do the kicking back that we're talking about, um the focus, um, they are really able to actually grow those new connections, not only more quickly, but they're then able to um to consolidate them. So that stuff about just leaving people to have some time to think about it, you can't. When you're busy and when you're in task mode, that is not when those new connections occur. The same as when you're in your meeting, you know, our meetings generally in organisations are for getting permission to get things done or yeah. for holding value in the company or for, you know, they're for all of those kind of positioning things. And we always hear about the ideas coming out of the pub afterwards or the, yeah. you know, the, coffee, the coffee discussion or the informal lunch it's why every single um, think tank's got a combined lunchroom. It's because those informal times are when the brain is playing around, influx of other chemicals that speed up that 
complex kind of cross activity. Um, so all of those things say that, yes, we do need time to contemplate on our own so that we are not taking up all the space of the brain by just distracting it with stuff or images. And we also need that informal time to get that lovely chemical dose with other people to be able to think informally and to be creative and innovative. Right. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about a lot and, you know, as you said at the start, we, you know, we've, we've only really kind of scratched the surface on a couple of things, but um, I, I, before you go, I'm taking up a lot of your time before you go, are there things, can you give, if, if people are saying, if people are worried about saying, well, lots of different things about kind of their brain being wired have you got any tips or or how, can we help rewire our brains if we've done a bit of damage to them at the moment? What are, Have you got some practical things that people can do or what advice would you give people, A, a for their well-being or B, just to kind of make them more productive in work? Are there th simple things that we can do or, you know, to help us rewire our brains or what behaviours would you advise people? Just, you know what, the next week, try doing this, think about that, try and do that and not that. A few tips before you go. Yes. So there's a couple of things. One is that, we are definitely a work in progress. In fact, we just did a fringe show for that, a friend and I, <laughs> on, um, we, you know, we're always a work in progress. And there's some parts of your brain, like the hippocampus, that you grow a new brain all your life. So the lovely thing is we can, it's called neurogenesis. It's the building of new brain and everyone can do it. So there's five main ways that you grow a new brain. So the first is exercise um, because it, it starts off, the um, various types of not just glucose and oxygen, but it starts off, oh, it's a very long chemical, but we'll call it BDNF, which is the chemical that start that is that allows you to build new neurons and new dendrites, which are the little connections between neurons. So it allows you to actually start building brand new brain. So get out there and exercise every day. It's what's called neuroprotective. Um, it also makes the neurons that you've got more resilient, stronger, so exercise is key to to you know to um, to changing your brain. Okay. And then the second thing is novelty. So learn something new, right? Because the brain we've got novelty detectors. The brain loves new things. And think of it like if if it's a whole new kind of concept that you pay attention to because you've got to pay attention, right? Then. Um, then you can, it's, it's like it builds new real estate to hold these new ideas. So learn things new. And if you're a bit older, learn, learn language, because that's not only really difficult, but every time we think of the new language, we actually have to translate from one language to another, because it's not like when we're tiny, because it's automatic. Mm. So if we learn it as an adult, we, that means that we make our brain work all the time. Because what we're trying to do is make our brain work. Right. Third thing is what you eat. So um, many people have now heard of the microbiome. They've heard of, you know, we've got two brains. We've got our central nervous system brain, which is in our head, and we've got our enteric brain, which is in our gut. And we've got, again, millions of neurons. Um, that one was actually built before our central nervous system brain when we were just being developed. Um, and we've that's where that enteric nervous system is where we grow many, many of the neurotransmitters that make our brain work. Um, and all our serotonin and all sorts of things are, are sort of grown and built there. So you've got this forest, which basically builds the building blocks like Lego blocks and sends them up to your brain. So eat roughage, eat things that are um, 
and eat fiber because that creates long chain fatty acids, eat fermented food. Don't just eat fat, salt and sugar because you'll just starve it to death and be done. Right. Um, so don't do that. And then the fourth thing is sleep. So we talked a little bit about sleep and mm. we start by maintenance sort of, you know, slows down heart. It takes off sticky plaque in your brain. But the later cycles of sleep go into that epigenetic change again and goes into that new building new brain. So, again, we get changes in the chemicals in our brain. That's why you wake up in the morning and you think, that's what I'm going to do. So sleep on it is absolutely right. But now we know it's because of what the brain does during sleep. And the other thing is we only lay down new information like learning um, memory when we sleep. So it's actually really important to convert what you've learned during the day by sleeping. Right. Um, but the fifth thing is uh, one of the biggest boosts of neurogenesis is again face to face direct human interaction. <laughs> right. So, for all the reasons we just talked about. So, a tip might be um, something I often challenge when I'm speaking is if because what we need to do is push our brain to work instead of distracting it, which is really lazy. Um, we need that increases willpower and it actually gets all of your brain working. But it's, it's like it's why a six year old is better at maths if they have to catch the bus than if you just run them in your car because their brain has to work. They have to work right. out how to get there. They have to take responsibility. It does all sorts of things. Um, so what, what you could do is for the next two weeks, all the listeners could use their non-dominant hand for everything and it will drive them absolutely nuts. Right. But if, um, if we do, so there's, there's beautiful tests that show that if you give someone a complex problem, and then you give them, uh, you make them use their non-dominant hand. Um, and two weeks is a good time, to, uh, you know, a good length of time to do it. And then they come back and you test them with the same level of complex problem. They will be better at it. Right, right. Because the brain's got, had to kind of get up off its backside and do things and do what it doesn't want to do. It's had to work harder. And whenever you do that with your brain, you get it back into the habit because, the, because everything we do just about is about different parts of the brain collaborating with each other. So you've, you've gotten it up and around and more collaborative again, and it will work harder. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's a much, much better thing to do. I, I do um, discussions often for the, the Work Tech Academy, and we look at architecture, leadership, and technology. And it's really interesting looking at the juxtaposition of all of them. You know, you can apply this kind of thing everywhere um, in how you look at the way that we interact with people, the way that we interact with technology, our space, our space changes the way we think. Um, so all of those things are going to change and stimulate, I guess, mm. how you, you know, how your brain works. But if you're going to do nothing else, then, you know, clean your teeth and do other things with your other hand and right. even try and work with your other hand. Right. And you'll hate but it will make you, you know, it'll, forces, it'll your brain. It forces your brain to force your brain into into not defaulting into the the stuff that you can do. You can do that without thinking. So, um, yeah, I actually heard. I think I I the the Work Tech Academy. I think that I'd heard you on a podcast. Um, you know, the, the Smart Coffee Break podcast series you did one of those episodes yes. which I just want to give a shout out to that because there's loads of because we talked a little bit about productivity in the workplace so that 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 whole smart coffee break podcast series there's loads lo loads of great content about you know which goes deep into productivity in the workplace and that kind of stuff and that's where I initially heard you um 
before you go, last question. What? Tell me just a little bit about the Neurotech Institute. What what type of work are you doing? Are you working? You mentioned you're working with governments. You're working with mainly governments and or NGOs, or are you working with private companies as well? And what type of things are you doing? And if people are interested in saying, you know what, I, I just want to have a little read about stuff. Is there anywhere people can find out some more information about the Neurotech Institute and what type of work you do? Um, but yeah, do you do stuff for private companies? Yeah, so it's we're proprietary limited. Um, so I've worked for about thirty years before, uh, in all sorts of companies. Before at fifty, I did a PhD. I decided it was about like I'd been working with building adaptive companies, and I thought this is about systems. They're you know, building complex adaptive systems. So off I went into doing a systems engineering PhD at fifty. Um, but I had been a psychologist as well, and and I just kept thinking. Well, how learning how you how a system works is fascinating, and how you build all the feedback loops that make things work better, and how you understand interconnection, and you know that's it's just incredible. But the other side of what you build was, but how do people think, and how do good leaders know how to do this? You know, do they think differently? And it turns out. One of my questions was, do they have different brains? And it turns out, yes, they do. Oh, yeah. um, so it ended up being this kind of double PhD in um, systems engineering and cognitive neuroscience, which is kind of like, you know, wet and dry networks. Um, so uh, then I was doing, still doing work consulting in companies. Um, but more and more, it was kind of the bigger picture of up came AI through the middle of that. And... Um, and so I would work with robotics and engineering and defense and say, yes, we could build that, but that's not how the human works. And, and the human won't interact with it that way or mm. the technology won't actually be able to pick up that. Um, and so more and more, I got really interested in that sort of that space in between with the actual interaction between the neurophysiology of human-human interaction and how amazing that is and how much we just don't think about it. and also, the what changes over the technology, um, you know, so when, what should we technologize? What shouldn't we technologize? What are we much better at? And what is technology much better at? And, and when should we partner them together? And how should we do that? And why should we do that? And when should we not do that? Mm. So started working in, in Finland around partnering uh, sort of with AI for a human-centric future and, and those sorts of aspects. Um, and it just built up more and more um, coming sort of out, back out of sort of lecturing and MBAs and unis to to just working in this space um, independently because by then we were working with with companies, we were working with governments, we were working with um, robotics groups, we were working with NGOs. I've always worked with NGOs. Um, and, and in every one of them, we have more and more technologization. And, but we all still always still have to figure out how do you best use what we've got? You know, mm. what's the best use of, of uh, use? It's mm -hmm. a terrible way to put it. But, you know, how do we maximise the unique offerings, if you like, yeah. <laughs> of humans and of technology and of the way that we can put them together so that we can get these really positive kind of human-centric outcomes and at the same time what does that mean for leading organizations as adaptive systems and it was just this really nice big sort of jigsaw puzzle and then COVID hit and so suddenly it became 
really relevant. Um, yeah. It was kind of was already relevant, but suddenly everyone had was in the middle of it. And what was interesting for me was for probably a, a year or so, we kind of disappeared because I couldn't do talks and we weren't working in companies. And all the really big guns were talking about their expertise, which was sometimes very questionable. Um, but what's now happened over a couple of years is lots of the things that were touted to work don't, and it's because they're doing things that they don't really understand the basis of. But if you understand how things work, you can make mm. really good decisions. Right. And yeah. you can use technology beautifully. And you can also design or use new types of technologies as well that really fit the, the you know the problem and really work well with what humans can bring to it. So uh, so that's where we're kind of at in all sorts of ways with with telehealth and health systems, with hybrid work systems, with um, robotics and autonomous systems. So we kind of work all over the place. Everything right. from the you know DOD in the uh, sorry the Department of Defense in the US right through to working with sort of validation um, of of people with dementia in Amsterdam or Israel or, um, you know, palliative care here in Australia. Like there's just uh, and uh, hybrid workplaces. So right. there just seems to an education and young children and, and technology. There just are so many. Our problem is that it's it's relevant everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, either the human-human connectivity and interaction is relevant or the human technology yeah. um, design or use is relevant. So um, I wanted a quieter life as I was aging and it's just more and more busy. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it didn't. Yeah, I was going to say it doesn't sound like you're you have much of a quiet life and you're, you're doing far more interesting work and far more meaningful work, I think, than marketing. So, you know, I said that. Sorry to drag you down into the into the kind of murky depths of, of marketing and advertising, but that's what that's what this podcast is. But there's a lot, there's there's so much um, stuff that just applies to, to everybody and, you know, marketing is a people-based business. So, Fiona, I'm, I'm so um, grateful for you to take the time and finding the time given our time differences and we're on other sides of the world. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a million for making the effort. Um, oh, thank you. And thank you for asking really good questions. Oh, no. I mean, it's, it's easy asking the questions, Fiona. It's, it's answering the questions. I'd, I'd much rather be this side of the of the mic asking questions because I just have to throw the question at you and then you've got to give the answer on your feet. So, um, <laughs> but uh, no, it was great. I really, I could, you know, we could have talked for, we could have talked for hours and hours about it, but I'm conscious I, I've kept you long enough. So um, that's it. We're out of time. I want to say thanks, Fiona. Right. And um, thanks to our partners, the Irish Times Media Solutions. And thanks to Kira in Marketing and Andrea on Sound. If you like this episode, listen back to lots of our other Evergreen episodes. I think we've got a back catalogue of about nearly 70 now. You'll find them by typing. Wow. Yeah, loads now. So you'll find it by typing Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. So until next time, thanks for listening. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.